All right, well, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Uh, it's been a while since I've done one of these. I think it's been a little bit over a month. Um, and, you know, kind of the reason for that, just school and, and work and, and holidays and uh, just kind of a lot of busyness going on and, and wasn't able to sit down. But uh, I'm excited to kind of get back into where we left off in the podcast uh, after the last episode. And I'm joined here again by my friend James Kayser, who actually now is, is, is a classmate of mine as of, uh, what, last week or this Monday? This last Monday. This last Monday, yeah. So, James, you want to just give a little update on, on what's going on and, and kind of where you're at? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like Jackson said, um, James Kayser, I've been on here a couple times now, uh, hopefully now regular. Let's <laughs> yeah. go. Now that you have some more time on your hands, I yeah. suppose. But uh, I just graduated um, from NDSU with a manufacturing engineering degree. Uh, just finished up my my playing days. Played football at NDSU for five years. Um, sadly, that's over now. But I'm really excited for what the Lord has um, for the future. So I'm actually enrolled at River City Institutes with Jackson and Joshua, who's been on the podcast, and led and by Devin, who's led also by Devin, been on the podcast. Who's been on the yeah. podcast. So yeah, this is just an extension of what we learned in class, probably. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm doing that. Um, part-time Monday through Wednesday. And then I'm also working to get on staff with Fellowship Christian Athletes um, on campus at NDSU. So I'll be working um, with the athletics there, um, probably predominantly in the football team, um, but just on campus, honestly, evangelizing and witnessing um, to former teammates and athletes and really excited for, for what the Lord has for me. And I'll be doing that for two years. Um, Gracie, my wife, um, is pregnant so we're expecting in june which is also really exciting so really big transition for me in this next part of life um but just pumped for what the lord has for me and excited to spend more time with you jackson and on the (laughs) podcast and in class and picking your brain and sharpening one another so praise god for his providence um in our friendship and in my life and excited for for this podcast and hopefully reaching people through it yeah dude i think of uh you know, when we were, when we were playing teammates together, like we, we would have so many conversations like this, uh, just on the, on the plane rides or, or, uh, at the dome before practice or something. Uh, but this is like, you know, now we kind of get to record that and hopefully, uh, by God's grace, maybe that would actually be a blessing to some people out there who are listening. Um, that's (laughs) at least what we, (laughs) that's, that's at least what we pray for. Um, so yeah, well, we, we can maybe jump into the to the topic today. Yeah. Uh, James, for your first topic back, this isn't necessarily an easy <laughs> one, uh, but we have been talking about, specifically about salvation, what, what the Bible has to say about salvation, um, and, and we, we, we kind of did a four-part series on, on the gospel, what it is, uh, you, know, you know, the message of the gospel as a whole, and, you know, now we've been doing this, this uh we just kind of started this series on the doctrines of grace, kind of really, really what it is, it's looking at a like deep and, and um, a really deep perspective on, on the gospel and how salvation works and specifically the role of God and, and the role you could say of, of man in salvation and what that looks like and how it's related. And in that we have been defending and trying to positively portray uh, the Reformed or the, some people say the, the Augustinian mm-hmm. view of salvation or, or the Calvinist, Calvinistic view of salvation. Now, when I say Reformed or Augustinian or, or Calvinistic, 
What I don't mean by that is that we're looking at some system that is outside of the Bible and saying, okay, this is what the Bible teaches. But what we are saying is that uh, Augustine uh, and and Calvin and and others who who have been teachers in in the history of the Reformed tradition actually give, give an accurate picture of what the Bible itself teaches about salvation, what the Bible itself teaches about the depravity of man, um, what the Bible itself teaches about about God's election, uh, what it teaches about the atonement, um, you know, kind of all of those things. And the, the way that that's often kind of boiled down is into these things called the five points of Calvinism, which is represented by the acronym TULIP, as we kind of, I think we explained that in the last episode a bit. So in the last episode, we talked about total depravity, which is represented by the, the T of the doctrine, uh, essentially meaning that it, that it, mankind in its fallenness is both unable and unwilling to, to come to God for salvation, uh, to participate in salvation. Mm-hmm. So it takes something that is entirely a work of God's grace in, in order for man to be saved. And that, and that, when we think about these things, this is this is one part of, of the our, our whole system of understanding salvation. And, and you know, when you look at the five points of Calvinism or uh, the, the way the Bible presents salvation in general, these doctrines kind of build on each other. So if you have, for example, total depravity, and, you know, if you can prove that from the Bible, then it follows that, that God's election from that must be unconditional. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, and it follows from, from that that... Um, that you know the, the the rest of the system follows that Jesus came and, and died for a specific people completely purchasing their salvation effectually he calls them to salvation per, and perseveres them to the end as well so in that uh, the, the, like I said the last episode we talked about total depravity which is the T and tulip now we are talking about unconditional election which is the U and just to just to give a heads up right now what we're what we kind of want to do in this episode is to present positively what is the teaching of uh, unconditional election? What do we mean when we say that? What does the Bible have to say about it? And in the next episode, we're probably going to do at least a two-part series on this. We're going to handle maybe some objections to that, maybe some of the challenges of that, maybe look at some some scripture passages that uh, some people have quoted to try to refute this idea of unconditional election. So, so yeah, that's that's a bit of where this is going. Uh, and now, first of all, if you if you know anything about this, you know that it's been a great debate in church history. You know that it's something that, that is very controversial, controversial, and oftentimes it can be a rather emotional issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, well, part of that is that it takes a, a lot of, of nuance to understand, and even for anybody who who is coming to to understand and wrestle with this doctrine wrestling with the ideas of God's sovereignty, of, of God's grace and salvation, of God unconditionally electing people, um, that can sometimes be a difficult thing for us to grasp. And sometimes that can really press on uh, what we believe or, or on you know, some of our preconceptions about, about God, about ourselves, and that can really, really challenge us. Yeah, for and, sure. and throughout the history of the church, this actually has been a, a large cause of some division. There has been much debate and much controversy over this. Uh, and, and I think what's, what's kind of sad about this is that because of that, because of the controversial nature of this, that, that often what, 
what people and what churches kind of decide to do is almost like not really talk about it very much. Yeah, it gets neglected. Yeah, it kind of gets neglected. And, you know, unfortunately, that that is a bit problematic. Like if, if we remember from our from our doctrine of scripture, like our first series we did we did kind of a doctrine of scripture. Uh, if the Bible says something, it, it means that God has put it there. Mm-hmm. So so if there's something that's in the Bible, and, and we're going to clearly argue that that the doctrine of election uh, and predestination is in the Bible, that that's essentially irrefutable. Uh, kind of the Old Testament's based on it, and, and Jesus uses those terms. Paul uses those terms. Peter, John, they use this terminology. So everyone who kind of takes the Bible seriously has to make something of this doctrine, mm-hmm. right? And, and unfortunately, what happens is that when people don't talk about this or don't try to explain or teach it, it, it it's almost as if saying that God was wrong in putting it in his word. Mm-hmm. And, and if we have a proper doctrine of scripture, we know that God puts things in his word, in his word for reasons, for purposes, and specifically that that by understanding them that like like this doctrine that God put it there so that it would bear fruit in people's lives. Yeah, exactly. So that it would cause people to be holy, so that it would cause people to love God and to worship him. Yeah, I just want to lay this bedrock. Um, I know this is the first time I've been participating in the doctrines of grace, but we aren't just discussing uh, the doctrines of grace or soteriology for the purpose of learning or some intellectual ascent. Our hope in this is that you would glorify God and that you would have a deeper relationship with the man Christ Jesus and as a result bring praise to his name. And we believe truly, we believe with our whole heart that these doctrines do that. Um, and so we want to expose you to them. We want to show you in the scripture that it's not some man-made doctrine that we've pulled from Calvin or from Augustine or some other outside source, but these are extracted from the scriptures, which are the word of God. And we want to show you guys that. And it it's so exciting. Like these, I remember when I was first exposed to them, I don't even, it was probably a similar time, me and you. Yeah. Actually, honestly, I think there was a, so there was a time we were in that, in that, uh, we were doing that class on, on apologetics. Oh yeah. Um, I actually remember specifically, yeah, shout (laughs) out to, so this guy named, named Sam, uh, Sam Parada is his name, but we were, he was kind of teaching this class. He was a seminary student at the time, but he, he was living in Fargo teaching this class, uh, on Christian apologetics. And, you know, we were, James and I, you, you and I would both go to that. This was a couple of years ago now, but we were going to this class and we were very young in, in the faith and, and hadn't. Uh, we, we were kind of new to like deep theology. Yeah. So we would ask Sam all of these questions. And I remember the one time, um, you know, one question got, got onto the topic of like Calvinism and, and God's sovereignty and all of that. And Sam was kind of quiet for a second, but then he said, he said, well, I am pretty much one of the most unashamed Calvinists that you're ever <laughs> going to meet. And then, and then he kind of, you know, whatever question it was, he gave us the his response to it, which was a reformed Calvinistic kind of response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that actually forced us to do, and I think you could attest to this too, James, you know, that was the first time I was really exposed to that. But yeah. what it forced us to do is that we went home and, and started studying the scriptures and studying the Bible kind of with this question in mind yeah. and like found for ourselves that, that this is overwhelming in the Bible, yeah. that, that this is essentially all over the place. And, you know, we kind of want to touch on that later in this uh, podcast, but 
but really like when, when I speak from experience, what that did in my life was that that actually like grew me in love for God so much more and in a greater desire to understand and to know his word. Um, and it gave me a real, like serious theological basis for humility. And that's not that I always walk in that perfectly, but, but I know because of this, because God has revealed this doctrine that I have no reason, absolutely no reason to boast in anything in myself. Yeah. So, so it leads me to great humility. And at the same time, it also leads me to great comfort in the sovereignty of God and great assurance of salvation. Because, because understanding how God's economy of salvation works brings great assurance and comfort to the believer. Yeah. And you're talking about the applications and we haven't even explained the document. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we should. We but should that's, probably a, do that. that's a good preface of just like the purpose and the goal of why we are discussing this and why we still discuss it today when we're together and why we're doing the podcast. Yeah. On. And uh, there's just so many great benefits for it. And it, and it should be exciting. Like theology is fun. I'm going to get it a is. t-shirt that says theology is fun. <laughs> yeah, we should make one of those. <laughs> yeah, that'd be epic. So yeah, so a, a, as we go to this, um, it, it's important that, that we want to look at what Scripture says. We're going to yep. define this in a little bit, look at some Scriptures. Um, but we need to recognize that we need to be shaped by God's Word on this and, and not the other way around. Like we need to kind of cast off our, our theological traditions, our uh, preconceptions of, of who God is and, and who we are and those and things. And our pride. And our pride. And I think and, that's one of the hardest things about uh, these doctrines is it, it rubs against us. It rubs against our pride and our human nature so much. I remember when I was first exposed to it, I was like, this cannot be true. Like trying to hold on to my autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a real hard struggle. So if you, as we present this doctrine to you, and as we go through the rest of Tulip, like if it's hard to swallow or to wrestle with, like that's totally normal. Yeah, that is, that is really okay. And like, we're like, I'm still like wrestling through these things. Now I I affirm them wholeheartedly and I believe that these are true and in scripture, but there's times when it's hard, it goes against our nature. Um, But we, we honestly and earnestly believe these are true and in the scripture and we want to show them to be so today. Yeah. You know, and and this will be hopefully the last thing before we kind of get into this. But um, (laughs) if you think about some of the most powerful teachers of this view of election in church history, especially recently. You know, you could think of a guy like Jonathan Edwards who lived in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. One of the most prolific writers on uh, Calvinism, on God's sovereignty and salvation, on the doctrines of grace. One of the most prolific writers in history supporting and defending those ideas. He speaks of a time when he was young where he just couldn't wrap his mind around this and he really struggled to believe it. And had much difficulty affirming these things. And yet he went on to be a great teacher and supporter of these. Same thing with uh, people closer in our day. You know, if if you listen to like John Piper or R.C. Sproul, and and those two guys probably in the late late 20th, early 21st century, they might be the most two prominent teachers of this in, in the American church. But both of them talk of times in, in college at seminary, seminary when they are wrestling with this idea that God elects a people to salvation and, and he doesn't elect everybody to salvation. Yeah. And actually, you know, they're, they're forced to 
to, to look at look at the text and to say this is what and sometimes this happens for us. We're forced that we come to a text and we say, okay, this is what this clearly says, but it's hard for me to under it's it's hard for me to believe it and understand it. Yeah. You know, Augustine had this uh saying it's well known, but he said, I believe in order that I may understand. I believe in order that I may understand. And what's significant about that is sometimes it's not always a, a perfect understanding of things that comes first, but sometimes it's an accepting of, of things by faith. And so often when it, when it comes to this, uh, we need to humble ourselves and, and come to the text and um, affirm what the text says, even if that's sometimes uncomfortable, even if that's sometimes hard, even if we don't understand it as fully as we would like to. Yeah. But that's what we're called to do by faith. Yep. So let's get into it. So let's get into it. So what is the, what do we mean when we say unconditional election? Well, first of all, when the Bible speaks of the salvation of, of people, of men and women, what you need to know is that the Bible doesn't place the ultimate cause of that salvation either in the persons themselves. That means it's not, it's not something within them. It's not as if like the, the, the people who are Christians, the people who have been saved are smarter than everybody else. It's not as if the Bible doesn't say that they have some greater capacity for faith than everybody else or they are more moral or more righteous. It doesn't place the ultimate cause of the salvation of people in themselves. And it also doesn't place it in a momentary decision that they make. Rather, the Bible places the ultimate cause of the salvation of individuals in a decree of God that took place before the foundation of the world. Now, you can take a second to wrap your mind around, but that's what the doctrine of election is. Uh, it is that God decreed or, or elected a specific people for himself to be saved. So in this decree, God, for the purpose of his own glory, from the, from the mass of fallen humanity, he elected an uncountable multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language on earth. That, that's what, you know, if we look at Revelation 7, it describes the people in heaven as an uncountable multitude. And that uncountable multitude of people, that's a, a way of saying a great, immense, immense number, is made up of all the specific individuals that God purposed from all eternity to bring to salvation and to the ultimate end of salvation, which is eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So, when we see in time the salvation of people, we know that the ultimate cause of that rests in God and rests in the decree of God to elect and, and save them, essentially. Uh, and that, that is what God has purposed from all eternity, and that is what God is working out and accomplishing in time. That's what, what Christ was, was sent to accomplish and that's what the Holy Spirit is sent to apply to the people of God. And so God is sovereign over this, and he is sovereign over the ends and the means of this. Okay? So when, when we say that, 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 that's really what it means when the Bible talks about salvation by grace. When it says that there is nothing for us to boast in, in our salvation, the gospel leaves no room for boasting, this is kind of the doctrine that, that forms the basis of that. It is not that we have chosen God. It is not that we have loved God. It is not that we have turned to God by our own strength or by our own power, but it, it, it is that God has, 
has chosen us mm -hmm. and that God has sent his son to die for us and that God has sent his spirit to regenerate us and to apply the gift of salvation to our lives. Yep. I'm just going to give this a succinct definition before. Are you ready to go into the scriptures? No, you're good. Okay. So just the, here's the definition that you can remember, put on your phone. God's decision to save someone does not ultimately depend on anything in that person. That's unconditional election. And that is what we're going to try to show you in the scriptures today. As we go through, I think we're going to start with Abraham and kind of go work through a little bit of the Old Testament and then get yeah. into the New Testament yeah. um, and show you in the scriptures where yeah. this is. So that's that's kind of what the what, what we mean when we say election. When we say it's unconditional election, yep. that's kind of what, what you're referring to there, yeah. James. It is, it is not... It is not that God has seen something in the person that's worthy of election. Now, now many people, you know, like we said before the last podcast, many people and uh, theologians and, and different traditions look in the Bible and they see this doctrine of election and this doctrine of, of predestination. And what they do is they, they change some of the Bible's teaching on it and they say, okay, this, this can't actually be God's sovereign choice, but they say that God from eternity looks down through kind of the halls of time and he sees he foresees something in a person so like he, he foresees some faith in a person or something of their own that is worthy of election and god then elects them on that basis so there's there's many traditions that hold that and that that is called that that would be conditional election yep so there's some condition whereby God looks through the, the halls of time and he sees the condition being met in certain people and God's election is therefore based on the meeting of that condition in people. So it's something in the person, it's something in themselves that is the basis for which God elects to salvation. And now we're going to go through some passages. We're going to try to refute that idea. Yep. And, and we're going to try to show that, that God's election is actually in the Bible clearly shown to be God's sovereign choice that is not based on something in the person but flows completely from the 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 love of god and the grace of god not from something that is foreseen or, or something that is in in that person so when we look at the scriptures and we want to find this in there uh you know you know the place we would start in we would say that the old testament is really built on this idea so in the beginning of genesis when god makes this plan to bring about the salvation of, of a people, an uncountable multitude. He, he begins by making a covenant with a guy named Abraham. And, and, and the Bible doesn't give any mention to this guy, to Abraham or to anything in him being specifically righteous. And actually, oftentimes what's recorded of Abraham's life, we see that he, just like us, is a failure in many ways. That just like us, he often falls short of the glory of God. But, but God specifically chose this man and his his offspring to play a, a crucial role in the salvation of, of God's people and in the bringing about of the Messiah. So God, God um, chooses sovereignly Abraham for that purpose and the nation that would come from Abraham. If you think about the, the nation of Israel, it says that, that God chose them to bring about the Messiah, uh, to, to receive God's revelation not for anything that, that, that they did or not because they were special in some way, but because God sovereignly chose them out of his grace and love. And a few scriptures to back that up. If we look at Deuteronomy 
This is after the, the nation of Israel has been formed. This is after they've been uh, redeemed from Egypt, uh, gone through the promised land. This is, you know, Deuteronomy is kind of like a, a covenant document for them as they go into the promised land. Um, but, it, but it says this, and this is important to note. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verse 6 through 8, this is what it says to the people of Israel. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So that's it. You know, that's essentially it. It is not because of uh, anything that was in the people, but God declared them to be a people holy to the Lord, and he chose them to be his people for his treasured, treasured possession out of all the peoples. And it was not because they were more in number. Now, another verse, if you look at Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, it says this, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, it records the stubbornness of the people of Israel. It records their, their many failings and their dealing with God. But God's relationship to them and his love for them was not ultimately based on their ability to obey God perfectly or to be righteous in themselves. But it was based on God's sovereign grace to them. Yeah. Even when we look at Abraham's story, I want to say Genesis 12, he is in a pagan nation, Ur, yeah. wandering around, not seeking God. And God calls him out of that nation, gives him a bunch of promises, cuts a covenant with him, and declares him to be one of his people and, and makes all these promises to him. And then out of that is born the nation of Israel. Um, and you you see that throughout the whole Old Testament. And I know one thing, um, just when I was ex exposed to unconditional election the first time, um, as I was reading the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, Gospel of John, Romans, um, Ephesians, I underlined and highlighted every time I saw the word chosen, God chose, this is chosen, election. And it will jump off the page at you at how many times in the Bible it says that God chose or God has chosen, God elected. Um, and I think it's just an evidence of, of this doctrine and it will show itself in the scripture as you, as you open your eyes and look for that. Yeah. And just even more importantly, when we think about the basis of our relationship with God, like, like if, if you, if you're thinking about like an Arminian system versus a Calvinist system or, or whatever, like even just our basis uh, for a relationship with God. Like if you, if you think about the actual implications of it being something that God foresees in us or, or, or something, some righteousness or some faith in us that God foresees and, and that is the basis by which we can relate to God. Well, that, you know, that, what assurance do you have? What assurance do you have yeah. of that? I, instead, as we see in this passage in Deuteronomy, the, the, the love of God and the grace of God toward his people is not conditioned upon uh, some sort of righteousness in themselves mm -hmm. or some sort of uh, faith that, that, that is worked in them, but rather it is that God freely and graciously loves them, gives them his promises, uh, and actually works out those promises in the course of history. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that that is kind of a quick summary of the Old Testament. We go to the New Testament where this is kind of more, almost 
you know, more clearly laid out. The Old Testament kind of lays a foundation for it, but um, it, it becomes really, really clearly laid out. There's a few places that the Apostle Paul uh, specifically uh, even gives long sections of teaching on this. Um, the first one that we're going to go to, a prominent one, is Ephesians uh, chapter 1. So I'm going to turn there. And I just want you to notice the language of this, okay? So this is going to be Ephesians 1. I'm probably going to read from verse 3 down to verse 14. But just notice the language that Paul uses and, and see if you can pick it up. It says this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, now, when you think about that passage, there's a few words that you should notice in there. James, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but verse 4, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when we think about, well, first of all, you know, it's passages like this where we see that the, the, the Bible and Paul in this instance has a doctrine of predestination. He has a doctrine of election. So when we want to understand that, um, we, we need to look at these texts and see what they're saying. And for the question of, of what is this election based on, uh, if you read plainly what Paul says, uh, you know, verse 4, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, so God, God chose us for, for he chose us for the purpose of holiness, mm -hmm. not because we were holy. He elected us to holiness, not because of our holiness. And if our election is to the purpose of holiness, then holiness certainly cannot be the cause of our election. Yeah. So we were elected to holiness, not because we were holy. And we even talked about it this morning, like... I am being sanctified because I am justified. Now, if right. you flip that, it's completely heretical. I am, I am justified because I am being sanctified. No, like we are being sanctified, made holy, blameless before God because we have been justified. And this is kind of a rabbit trail, but I just thought <laughs> yeah. I'd add that in because um, it just makes so much sense. And then the purpose of this, you can see in Ephesians six. He said, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So what does this election lead to? Or what is it purpose behind? His glorious grace. 
to give glory to God. And ultimately, like, that's one of the biggest defenses for this doctrine is we talk about what is the purpose of mankind? The purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm-hmm. What gives more glory to God? Him unconditionally electing people or us choosing God out of some goodness of ourselves? No, then we have reason to boast and we mm-hmm. steal some of God's glory. Yeah. Um, but an unconditional election, it's all his as it should be. Yeah. And even if you, if you think about like a macro picture of this, like in the one system you have God ordaining and accomplishing the certain, certain salvation mm-hmm. of an innumerable number of people. Like, like God, God is, is gracious to the point where he elects the salvation an innumerable number of people and brings them all there. Certainly. And that, that's the Calvinist view. On the, on the, uh, in the Arminian view, God's, here's what God's grace does. In the Arminian view, God's grace, and this is what Christ came to do, he came to accomplish and purchase the uncertain potential salvation of everyone, but nobody in particular, everyone in general. So at the very best, you have the uncertain um, general salvation of, of, well, you have the certain salvation of no one, but the potential salvation of everyone with that potential based on something in them. Where instead, on the Calvinist side, you have the certain salvation uh, of an innumerable multitude of people, and God gets all the glory for it. Yeah, praise God. If if you're born again, this this should give you so much hope and assurance and praise to God. Um, and then, if you are not saved and wrestling with Christianity, what it's all about, this offer is to you of salvation, of a certain and sure salvation. God cannot lie. He makes a promise that he will save us, that we will be in his presence, that we will be his people. Mm -hmm. And he purchased us by the blood of Christ, the lamb who was slain on our behalf. Christ fulfilled the covenant in being perfectly obedient and then died the sin-bearing death on the cross, rising again three days later, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And the Bible says if we trust in Christ rather than ourself and our own goodness, if we trust in Christ the God-man, we can have this salvation. And it's certain. And it's mm-hmm. yours and it's offered to you. The Bible says knock and you will find it. It, it, is, it is there for you. And we want you to have it. Um, and so don't feel like... Uh, I was going to go into something, but this offer of salvation is to you. And if you are born again... Praise God um, for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, you know, just thinking when, when we, well, we'll get into some more passages later about how, how that, that, like when, especially Jesus in the Gospel of John, like there's a lot there, but he talks about uh, the certain salvation of his people. Yeah. And we're going to kind of get into that. So what, and, and that just goes to show, so we've, we're all in unconditional election, but we're already dipping our toes into perseverance of the saints. Like right. these doctrines it's connected. The, yeah. They all yeah. kind of mesh together and, and are built upon one another and they all kind of fall if you try to take one of them out. And so like, as we're talking about it, we're almost accidentally getting into the assurance and all the other parts of, of uh, the doctrines of grace. Yep. Well, they all kind of work together. Yeah, they do. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do now, Romans eight um, or Romans well, before nine. we turn there, just, just, on this, back to the same idea of God's unconditional election. Yep. Uh, I want to give a quote from Augustine. If you know Augustine, we mentioned him a few times. Uh, he lived in the, at the 
at the end of the 4th century, early 5th century AD, a long time ago. But he was very influential. So here's a quote that he has specifically about this, this nuance between uh, you know, conditional or, or unconditional election. He says this. He says, certainly, this is quote, certainly there is no place for the vain argument of those who defend the foreknowledge of God against the grace of God and accordingly maintain that we were elected before the foundation of the world because God foreknew that we would be good, not that he himself would make us good. This is not the language of him who says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Quotes John fifteen sixteen there. For had he chosen us because he foreknew that we would be good, he would at the same time have foreknown that we were to choose him. So there, there's Augustine in the, in the 4th and 5th century arguing against this idea that God foresees goodness in us and then on the basis of that elects us to salvation. And the, and the, the scripture that he uses is John 15, 16, where, where Jesus clearly says to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and I, and I have taken you out of the world. And, and what God is, is doing in, in election, and Augustine kind of makes this clear, it's not because God foreknew, this is the part of the quote that I like, not because God foreknew that we would be good, but that he himself would make us good. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of in this Ephesians 1. It's not because of our holiness that we are elected, but actually it's because of our election that we are holy. Oh. The, the, the purpose of it is to holiness, not because of it, mm-hmm. Right? And that it would that ultimately that it would be to the praise of his glorious grace. So so that Ephesians one that that kind of section, you know, I'd encourage you to go to go back and just read it slowly, uh, and, and actually ask yourself this question and kind of ask yourself what the text teaches. Yeah, and into Ephesians two as well. You'll oh see, yeah, into you'll Ephesians see total two. depravity in Ephesians two one, um, and then on into Ephesians two eight with unconditional election. Um, so read the first two chapters. Yeah, and, and even in chapter two, you know, you have that very succinct uh, verse, verse eight. It says, "You've been saved by grace uh, through faith, and this is not by works. This is not of yourselves. This is a gift of God. Uh, that that grace and, and that faith by which you've been saved is a gift of God. And, and really, on top of that, if you, if you're thinking about this this foreknowledge view of election, if faith is a gift of God, as the Bible teaches that it is." then how could it be possible that God would look through time and see faith in a person and elect on that basis? That's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that faith is a gift of God uh, that comes by the Spirit of God and and the grace of God uh, and is given to a person. Mm -hmm. And it is that by which we are justified and and made right with God. Yeah, and I think we need to keep going through some passages because that's the important part. Not our words or anything, but... Right, 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 yeah. Like, the discussion at hand is, okay, we see this doctrine of election in the Bible and predestination. We need to decide whether it is conditional based upon mm-hmm. something in ourselves or some foreseen faith, or is it unconditional based upon the sovereign choice of God. And those are really the two camps. Those, that is what we're trying to, to figure out here, and that's the question that you should be wrestling with. Yep. So here's another passage, very, very brief one, um, but I'm going to go to 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. And I'm going to read there. Uh, they're, they're kind of linked together, so you'll see. But Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is Paul talking. But, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the, through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying there? He says that, that the salvation of God by which God saved us and by which he calls us to a holy calling, it's the same language, not because we're holy, but God calls us to a holy calling, but that salvation is not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of Jesus Christ our Savior. So when we think about that, that question, again, here, is it, is it because God foresees something in us, or is it according to God's own purpose? Well, in, in, this, in this again, it seems pretty clear that this is according to God's purpose, uh, and strictly on the basis of, of unconditional sovereign grace. So that's another quick passage. Uh, yeah, I'm going to jump to John 1, and we're just going to rip through like a bunch of verses in John for you here. Like, If you're looking to yeah. see this somewhere, read the Gospel of John. Yeah, it's, uh, just, wi- it's just widespread in the New Testament. But yeah, yeah let's, go through, let's go through John. Quick. Another one of those words, and it, it was mentioned in that Timothy passage, is called. Mm-hmm. You can add that to your underlying underlining and highlighting uh list yeah call and we're gonna get that in, into the eye of tulip which is irresistible grace or some people call it effectual calling yeah so that when god when god calls people uh that it works that he, that he doesn't fail uh but go ahead james if you're in john yep first john um let's see i'm gonna start no, john gospel oh yep yep john one sorry john one verse 11 he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how were they born? The will of God. <laughs> yeah. Not by, not by blood, not by uh, physical descendancy, not by their own will of their flesh, but by the will of God. We're talking about spiritual birth, by the way. Yeah. Don't don't fall into Nicodemus' camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go read John John three. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna read another one. John six. John six, and this is kind of all over John six. You'll see a number of these same 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 doctrines in the teaching of Jesus. Um. So here we go. John six. I'm gonna read thirty seven through thirty nine. It says this. Uh, Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So there it is. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So, so in this, you got to recognize that you know, and, and there's a lot that forms the basis of, of our idea of, of uh, election. And, and part of that is that when, like, God's economy of salvation, like, we understand that God is a trinity. God the Father, God the, God the Son, God the Spirit. And all of them, all, all members of the trinity are working together to accomplish this salvation of the people. So when Jesus is talking here, he is saying that the Father has a people that he has given to me. Mm-hmm. 
And Jesus is saying that I will raise them up on the last day and that I can lose nothing of all that he has given me. So the father has a people that he's given to the son and they will lose none of them. So, so this is not, when we think about salvation, this is not just something that is only about the relationship between God and man, but it is also something that involves the intra-Trinitarian, that, that means within the Trinity, uh, the relationships with, within the Trinity that's going on. Like this is something that, 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 that God as a Trinity is accomplishing. The, and, you know, we mentioned this earlier, but God the Father is the one who, who elects and decrees this. God the Son is the one who accomplishes it, and God the Spirit is the one who applies this. Uh, so, so all members of the Trinity are, are working together to bring about this reality. Um, so, so, so that is another example, uh, and you can see there clearly, again, irresistible grace, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, do we, do we take that seriously? Like, do we take that teaching of Jesus seriously? And then the one that follows it, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What's, yeah. the, what's the causing agent? What's the drawing, drawing nature? It, it is the Father who is drawing people unconditionally to the Son to place their faith in him. Yeah, and, and that's total depravity. No one can come to me. Yeah. No one, no one is able to come unless the Father draws. Um, that's John 6. Also, uh, John 10 is going to be similarly very clear on this. Uh, in, in this, Jesus is, is having a discourse with the Pharisees. I'm going to start in John 10. I'm going to start in verse 22. It says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let's so, go. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. When we talked earlier in the podcast about this being a basis for our assurance mm -hmm. of salvation, what more could we be assured about than Jesus saying, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there is a people that belong to Jesus, yeah. that belong to God the Father, and they will hear his voice. They will follow him. They will receive eternal life, and no one can stop it. Yeah, and, and what a burden that that takes off of us the reality that my salvation is not dependent on how much faith i can muster up or how big or strong my faith is um, but rather on the electing purposes of god is my salvation secured praise god for that amen uh, john 10 so good 
We're, you're literally for every single tulip you pre, you pretty much come back <laughs> for every one of these you can come to john 10 i know it's everywhere i'm trying to think there's somewhere in uh in john 14 through 17 i think it's in 17 um but it's jesus praying to god the father oh here we go yeah, yeah I, I found it i found it okay i'm gonna start in verse 8 this is john 17 8 says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, Jesus praying to the Father, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. And he says this in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Yeah, so that's... that's Jesus in his praying, he's, he's praying for those that the Father has given to him, uh, those that, that specifically belong to him. And now, again, I just want to say, in this episode, we're trying to just lay out the truth of this. Yeah. Now, because certainly, as you've been listening to this, there, there are many things that probably pop to your mind and many uh, potential objections. We're, we want to address those. Uh, we're going to wait till the next episode to do that, uh, address some objections and, you know, talk about some, some more passages because, you know, th- there are uh, Arminian theologians that, that, you know, it's not, it's not as if they're just like entirely throwing the Bible out the window. They want to try to find passages that, that support their doctrine. Now we're going to argue that those pa- passages actually don't support their doctrine um, and we're going to talk about them. But just as we do this, just, just remember, um, some of those things you're probably thinking are natural. We want to address some of those. And, and it's okay. And hopefully uh, there's a willingness to wrestle through some of these things. But I think as we've seen so far, the testimony of Scripture is pretty clear. Now, the last place that we're going to go, and this is really the mo- probably the most prominent place in the longest teaching, specifically on uh, unconditional election, but it's, it's Romans, uh, really the end of Romans 8 and into Romans 9. Uh, Paul kind of gives... A longer discourse on this. This is kind of the famous passage. Um, but I'm going to start in Romans 8, verse 28. And it says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I'm going to stop there. And we're going to talk about this verse, specifically this verse 30, probably a lot. This is what's commonly referred to as as the golden chain of salvation. Because you see that uh, God's, you know, there's this chain of things. It says God, it starts with predestining, calling, justification, glorification. So it's this chain and kind of this this sequence of events uh, that happens in the salvation of a person. And, and when we, you know, when we talked about a little bit at the, the beginning of the episode, we got to understand that, that that there is a lot that is involved in the salvation of a person. And what we're saying when we talk about election is that election is the first part of that. Election is the decree of God before time for the salvation of that person. But in time what actually happens is that there's a number of things that are wrapped up in the salvation of a person. Uh, one of them being that the person is called. So it's like Jesus said in John 10, you know, those who are among my sheep, they hear my voice 
and they follow me. So there, there is some point during the life of, of the elect uh, believer whereby they are uh, called to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what really kind of logically follows that is, is justification, which Paul mentions here, which is the, the legal, you can think of it like a legal declaration of righteousness before God. So in, when a person is justified before God, um, what, what, what Paul means when he says that is that they are made right with God, that God is making a, a basically a legal decree that this person, because of the work of Christ, that this person is righteous, their sins are not counted against them, their sins have been imputed to Christ, and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them. Mm-hmm. So the person is, is declared righteous. Um, and now, <clears throat> now Paul also... Uh, interesting about this, he goes from justification to glorification. Now, glorification is the very end of this chain. That that is for uh, really, actually, at the return of Christ, when when all it says all believers will be will be received glorified bodies and, and live with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And interestingly, Paul, what's notable about this is that Paul skips uh, one one part, one crucial part of salvation, which you mentioned earlier, James, which is sanctification. Now, he talks about it a little bit in, in verse 29. He says, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and that's really what's happening in sanctification. Uh, sanctification is, is the process like between our justification and, and our, our regeneration, you would say, where the spirit regenerates our hearts, which happens uh, essentially simultaneously to like justification. Yep. But it's followed by sanctification, which is the process throughout our lives before our death where we grow by the Spirit to be more like Jesus. So a person may be, may be very infant in, in faith at the time when they, when they first believe, uh, but as they grow throughout their life and as the Spirit continues to work in them, it, it, it's conforming them more and more to the image of Christ. So they're going to look in character more and more like Jesus, in humility, in their compassion, in their love for God, in their love for people, uh, in their, in their, you know, the fruits of the spirit, gentleness, patience, peace, kindness, self-control, all of those. <clears throat> Part of our salvation is that God is doing those things in us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but what's important to note here is that Paul, Paul, Paul basically skips that because justification is so linked to glorification that it's it's almost an afterthought. It's so certain. It's so certain. And that's why it's and, in the past tense. Yeah, and that's why all this is in the past tense. And it begins, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And all of those are, are certain and connected. You you can't be you if you if you've been predestined, then it is certain that you will be called. And it is certain if you've been called that you'll be justified. And it's certain that if you've been justified, you'll be glorified. It is an unbreakable chain. You can't receive uh, election without receiving justification. You can't receive justification without receiving sanctification. And that's, you know, that's really part of where this, uh, when you think about, you know, the Arminian doctrine, it's not just that they, they don't believe that, um, you know, they, they believe in like conditional election, so to speak. They also don't have a place uh, for assurance of salvation. And what they're doing is they're missing the, the connection between these things. Because all who, who have been elected to salvation, it is certain that they will be called, that they will be justified, that they will be glorified. Those things are all actually worked out 
in time. And it, and this is just one of the beauties of, of God's economy and his system is he knows that we struggle with the assurance of salvation. If you go back to the patriarchs, look at Abraham's story. Abraham was struggling with the covenant promises. And so then God gave him a sign uh, of circumcision. I will accomplish what I promised to you. And here's how you know what I've, I've circumcised you so that you know that you will bear a child and your offspring will be many. And and God knows all throughout, if you just read the, te- the Old Testament and, and the New as well, you'll see that God has given us things so we can be assured of salvation. And he has created a system in which we can be assured. And that's one of the most beautiful and glorious things about um, the doctrines of grace is that we can actually have assurance that we are going to heaven one day. Yeah. Well, even for Abraham, like you see in that, in the whole scenario, God binds himself to Abraham by covenant. Yeah. And the whole, the whole Bible, like all the ways in which God relates to man is by covenant. And in the last supper, when Jesus is about to uh, go to the cross, he, he gives the, the bread and the cup. Uh, he institutes the Lord's supper or communion to his disciples. And he says, this is the blood of my covenant. Mm-hmm. So, if you understand what a, what a covenant is, is it is a, like it, it is, it is, it really is God binding himself to his people by covenant and by the signs of the covenant, which in this case, in the Lord's Supper is the, the bread uh, and, and wine or grape juice, if you're a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, God, God, God gives assurance uh, to his people of salvation. And, and part of that is, you know, these are these are God's promises in His Word. Mm-hmm. They are covenant promises that God has bound Himself by the Word of His covenant to His people. Yep. All right, so, should we get into Romans nine? Yeah, this episode's probably like already an hour, or I don't know. I think we're coming up on an hour. Okay, but uh, we should probably get into Romans nine, and then we'll um, we could just make one really long one. All the objections. True. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners don't want it. No, we'll. Uh, you know, this, just the nature of this topic, this one I figured was probably going to run long, but we'll get into Romans 9. So now, well, really at the end of Romans 8, if you read the end of Romans 8, uh, Paul is is really asking the question, can anything separate us from Christ? Anything. Is it, is it possible for anything to separate us from Christ? And his answer is no. Um, and even he says, you know, ver- verse 31, right after that, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um verse 33 who shall bring any charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who is to condemn so just just that same doctrine who who can bring any charge against god's elect uh, and now as, as paul as paul goes into chapter 9 um he he's really well he he a little bit he shifts kind of his focus but he he is addressing the issue basically of the fact that many Jews in the days of, of, of Jesus and in the apostolic age did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So now he's addressing the question of the promises of, of, of God's word in the Old Testament. And he is basically the question in verse 6, he asks it this way. This is, the, uh, this is his answer. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So, so this is the question. Because there are so many unbelieving Jews, has the word of God failed? Have the covenant promises been fulfilled? And Paul's answer to that 
is that the covenant promises never belonged uh, to all of the physical offspring of Abraham that made up the nation of Israel, but as Paul puts it, to the children of the promise, that is to, to God's elect people. And um, yeah, let's just start reading this. I'm just going to start reading in verse 6 right there. Paul says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and then he goes on to quote um, right here from Genesis 21.12, he says this, through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. That was the promise uh, of God to Abraham. Verse 8, he explains, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament, showing that this has always been the case. It was the case with Abraham. It was the case with Isaac and, and with uh, Jacob after him. He says this, and not only so, um, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that, that last one is a quote from Malachi 3.1. So what's, what's Paul doing in this? Paul's beginning to explain his doctrine of election here by looking back at the Old Testament and he's making a contrast between uh, descendants of Abraham. And he's saying it's not the physical descendants of Abraham that are recipients of the covenant, but it is the children of the, of the promise. And the first thing he does is he points to Isaac. Isaac, the promises of God were, were given to Isaac as opposed to Ishmael in his generation. And then Paul goes to the next generation, the sons of Isaac. And if you go and read that event in Genesis, and Paul interprets it for us here, the declaration uh, that God was going to, this one here, uh, verse 12, it says, she was told the older will serve the younger. That comes from Genesis 25, 23. And what that means is that God decided and decreed that the blessing of, I think I believe the word is primogeniture, uh, which is the... No, the, the yep. So in, in that day, the, the oldest son would get the blessing of the inheritance. Okay, they would get the big, the big share of the inheritance, yeah. right? But what God did in this case is that he reversed it and he declared that the blessing would belong to Jacob, who was the younger son. And that's actually what happened as it got worked out in history. And, and the reason that Paul gives for his doing that is in verse 11. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but, here we go, because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So God, God in his sovereign grace, decided that Jacob was going to be the one to receive this blessing from God, despite the fact that he was younger. And the reason he did that is so that God's purpose of election might continue, which is not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
and then in your mind right now, you're thinking, how was this fair? Yeah. It's a, it's a, how is how was this yep. just of God? Before they had done anything either good or bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then verse 14. Yep. So so then, you know, the, the obvious the obvious in, uh, objection here is raised and Paul raises this objection against himself. Uh, a hypothetical objection against his own doctrine. Brilliant. Yep. <laughs> he says this, "What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part?" And that's the big question. Mm. That's the hardest thing for us to wrestle with. If you're saying that God chose Jacob and not Esau and that, and that there was nothing that they had done, either good or bad, yeah. is there injustice on the part of God? And Paul's response, uh, he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, and now he quotes from Exodus 33, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, just I, like, let's think about that verse 16 again. And, and it's, it's not, I mean, Paul could hardly say this more clearly. Mm-hmm. There is not really an arrangement of words that Paul could really make <laughs> more clear than to say uh, what he says in verse 16, which is, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now the question, and this is already getting into some of the objections, yeah. um, but the question is there unrighteousness in God in this? Is God unjust to operate this way? And what's important that that we really must understand is, is you know, when, when, when Paul says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. The thing to understand is that, that God is not obligated uh, to show mercy and to show compassion. God is not obligated to do that. And, and for each of us, uh, because of our sinfulness, uh, God c- could be entirely righteous and operate c- completely without fault or blame or in any way unrighteous if he were to bring us to the just payment of our own sin. Yeah. It, God, God would be righteous if before the beginning of time he were to look out at all of the mass of fallen humanity and he were to see nothing that was worthy of his election, nothing that is worthy of his specific grace and goodness, um, and he could elect nobody to salvation, but that is not what he did. God elected an uncountable multitude of people to salvation and, and to bring them to, to the end eternal, to the end of which is eternal life. Yeah. And God did that freely out of his mere goodness and grace. Yeah. I think oftentimes the question that we tend to ask, um, or in conversation with people was, why doesn't God save everyone? Mm-hmm. But the question we should really be asking is, why does God save anyone? Mm-hmm. We need to recognize that none of us are deserving of his mercy and grace. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against our creator. God, rich in mercy, created the entire universe and then created human beings to be in relationship with him, to cultivate the earth. He gave us the whole literally the whole earth to have dominion over everything and be in perfect relationship with him. Um, and Adam and Eve sinned against God. And then in that we also have fallen short and sinned against God and we deserve nothing but his wrath. Mm-hmm. And he would be perfectly just in sending us all to hell. Yep. But God being rich in mercy sent his son, Christ Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and to reconcile us to God. And that's the good news of Christianity. 
And that's the good news of the doctrines of grace. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're talking right now on this <laughs> podcast. That's why I'm going to RCI. That's why I want to be a part of FCA is because God has sent his only son to save people, to save sinners, to come and seek and save the lost. And he uses us, his, his, his elected people, as instruments to bring about the good news to, to the lost and to the other elect. And now we are here to bring about the glory of God and to proclaim the truth. Because how can anyone hear and believe in the gospel um, if there isn't someone to tell them, Romans 10? Yep. So yeah, so there's, there's, there's much that still goes into this. Um, you know, there's the question, and we're going to get to it later in Romans 9, but there's the question of, you know, if God is sovereign over all of this, how can he condemn uh, yeah. those whom he has not elected to salvation? How can he possibly be possibly punish them? We are going to address those, those questions. What, what role does human responsibility play in all of this? Uh, we are going to address that hopefully in the next episode. Uh, but I'm going to close this here. I'm going to, I'm going to close us, uh, with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, uh, who is, was a pastor in the 19th century. Uh, very, very notable, uh, as, as a, as a teacher of, uh, the doctrines of grace, but he says this, and I think it's really insightful. He says, quote, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Wow. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, Spurgeon was a great preacher, and, and you know I think it is the testimony of, of every believer in Jesus Christ. It, it must be the testimony that this was not of me, uh, that this was not because I was, because I figured it out or because I was smart enough or because I was holy enough or because, uh, I was righteous enough, but because God, uh, in, in the richness and, and kindness of his mercy, uh, chose to, to be gracious and to, to give the gift of salvation to us freely. Um, and that we were able to receive that and, and to look forward to to the promise of God and salvation, and and, and trust that God is keeping us until that day, mm-hmm. and that we will be raised up on that final day. That is our great hope. Uh, that is that is what we rest in so often. That is what puts me to sleep easy at night. <laughs> so I am thankful for that. I hope that this has been a, a blessing to all of you guys who would hear it. Yeah, just a, just a reminder quickly before we leave, um, before we put out that next podcast. Um, the question to be wrestling with is, is election conditional or unconditional? What is it based upon? So as you're searching the scriptures, going back through uh, Romans 9, there, there's lots more in Romans 9 that we, that we didn't get to cover. Um, Ephesians 1 and 2, um, that is the question that you should, you should be asking yourself. Yep. And, you know, at, at, the, least, at the least, if this podcast, even, even if right now you disagree with us, maybe you think that... Um, you know, this is monstrous teaching or something. My prayer is that you would please go and just study the scriptures. Uh, if that's what this accomplishes, that you study the scriptures deeply, that you ask these deep and serious questions, uh, that you seek to find answers to them diligently and faithfully, then I, I am quite certain that you will be richly blessed by that. Um, and my, my prayer is that this this has spurred you on to do that. So with that, we will we'll close the episode. God bless you guys. Thanks for Thanks for listening.